audio teaching is provided by segulab.net. You are listening to our study series on Luke Acts. All right, welcome to session 13. We're we're finally getting to the end of the book of Luke in our study of Luke Acts. So our focus today is going to be on the last three chapters from the book of Luke. Uh, This is where we get to what's really the focal point of the Gospels. Um, Yeshua's, Yeshua's suffering, his death, and his resurrection. Everything has been building up to this point. Uh, there's a, a famous, uh, I can't remember who the scholar was that came up with this phrase, but it's been repeated quite often among scholars. The idea that uh, the gospel, uh, talking about the gospel of Mark in particular, but the gospel of Mark is described as a passion narrative with an extended introduction. <laughs> because this is really the focal point of, of the gospel of Mark is this, this final uh, week of that, that, that Passover week leading up to Yeshua's crucifixion and then his, uh, his uh, burial and then his resurrection. I mean, that's, that's the real uh, focal point of the gospel. So, uh, you know, that's true of the gospel of Mark. I, I think it's also, in a sense, it's true of all the gospels, that all the gospels have this uh, this final Passover and Yeshua's suffering and death and resurrection at the forefront. This is like, this is the climax of the story. This is what we've been building up to um, as we've been going here. So yeah, everything that we've read up till now is has been leading to this in one way or another, right? This is, uh, this is the focal point. Um, I want to start today, let's start by jumping ahead a little bit, and I want us to go all the way to uh, close to the end of Luke 24. We're going to look at Luke 24, verses 44 to 47. And I'd like to ask for a volunteer. Anyone willing to read that? Uh, Luke 24, 44 to 47. Okay, sure. Uh, Yeah, go ahead, Gloria. That would be great. Okay, 44. Then he said to them, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. Then he said to them, thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. And that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Excellent. Yeah, thank you. All right. So this is, uh, I mean, this is, after Yeshua's ascension already, right? He's speaking to his disciples. And I mean, 
this this phrase he opened their minds to understand the scriptures that's uh, it's kind of an amazing phrase you, you know i wish i wish god would do that for me <laughs> right um but but look at what he says thus it is written that the messiah should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead um uh, first of all uh one interesting thing notice how yeshua describes the tanakh what commonly called the old testament he calls it the law of moses the prophets and the psalms right these are this is the three sections of the hebrew bible you've got the torah the nevi'im the prophets and the psalms representing the the writings the ketuvim that's that acronym forms the term tanakh right torah prophets and writings uh this yeshua this is the uh one of the earliest attestations of that threefold uh division that we have it's, it's not the earliest but it's a early uh way of referring to the hebrew scriptures as the tanakh right um but then look at what it says thus it's written that the messiah should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead it, it kind of this has always raised a question for me and that is, uh, I've, I've often struggled with this. Where exactly in the Tanakh is it written that the Messiah should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead? Has anyone ever wondered that? Um, here's another passage that's related. Uh, let's look at 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 3. I'll read this here. It says, Paul, Paul is talking, he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Messiah died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep, and he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. But again, what's, what uh, I want to highlight here is that um, Paul emphasizes that these things happened in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, right? So, so for both, uh, well, in, in the Gospel of Luke, Yeshua is talking, um, and here Paul is talking, and uh, there's this sense that what happened with Yeshua's death, his burial, and his resurrection on the third day, we see that emphasized, that this is a fulfillment of scripture, that scripture prophesies that Messiah would do these things. And it has raised the question for me, where exactly in the scripture is this prophesied? Where exactly in the Tanakh do we see these things uh, mentioned or foreshadowed, right? Where does the Tanakh say precisely these things? I mean, we, I'm sure we're all familiar with certain passages such as the, uh, you know, Isaiah 53, where it talks about this suffering servant, or maybe Psalm 22 has some, uh, you know, talks about being uh, pierced, right? Uh, other things that related to the crucifixion, um, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, these, so some of these passages we might say, you know, we might 
find piecemeal bits, bits and pieces here that can apply to what happened to Yeshua, right? And some of them are, are definitely vivid. But is there anywhere that says precisely what Luke and Paul are referring to here, that Messiah will rise from the dead on the third day? Where in the Tanakh does it say that? Um, well, I'd like to suggest that there's nowhere in the Tanakh that says it in those words, but I think the Tanakh does predict a third day resurrection, just not in the places we usually think of looking. We're going to come back to that in just a moment. But yeah, we see these passages. Uh, here's a more comprehensive listing. Uh, twice in Luke 24, first Yeshua is talking to the guys on the road to Emmaus. Then when he's talking to his disciples, he brings up this fact that what has happened to Yeshua was prophesied, was, is contained in the Tanakh. In Acts, uh, Paul, when he's talking in one of his, his speeches, he says essentially the same thing. What, has, you know, what happened to Yeshua, his death, his burial, his resurrection, this was all said beforehand in the Tanakh. And then 1 Corinthians 15, which we just looked at. So where in the Tanakh are these things foretold? Let's come back to that in, in a bit. Um, last week, we looked at how Yeshua's triumphal entry was a bit of an anti-climax. Instead of Jerusalem accepting him as king, only his disciples do so, right? Um, instead of, uh, you know, and, and instead of the city accepting him, the city rejects him, right? It, it, and essentially seals its own fate. So uh, we see how the destruction of Jerusalem that will take place in 70 CE is foreshadowed in Yeshua's teaching. Prior to Yeshua's entrance in Jerusalem in chapter 19, the fate of the city is uncertain, right? So we go back to chapter 13 and other places. We see this sense that if the people repent, there's still a chance for them to escape this coming judgment. It's not yet certain the way Yeshua is presenting it. But when we get up to chapter 19 with the with Yeshua's entrance into Jerusalem, this fate is sealed. This fate is made certain. And Yeshua now sees it, the coming destruction as inevitable. But even in these passages, we also saw little hints of future restoration, right? Judgment is not the end of the story for Jerusalem. And both Matthew and Luke make it clear that Yeshua's entry into Jerusalem was only a small foretaste of his real triumphal entry that will take place in the future. And on that day, all Israel, including her leaders, will acknowledge Yeshua as king. So uh, if you remember from way back in our first two sessions, when we were looking at Luke chapters one and two, these first two chapters of Luke vividly depict a real physical restoration of Israel, a political kingdom to be ushered in with the coming of Yeshua, including the downfall of Rome and a literal national, literal national restoration for the Jewish people. As we know from history, however, this did not happen. Instead, Israel was defeated and the temple was destroyed in 70 CE, putting the Jewish people on a course of suffering that would last for thousands of years. How do we reconcile this discrepancy, right? How do we reconcile the discrepancy between this 
picture of restoration and redemption for Israel that we see in Luke chapter 1 and 2. And what we know of what actually happened to Israel, to the Jewish people in subsequent history. Well, um, there are two common approaches among scholars uh, in an attempt to, uh, to sort this out. How do we reconcile this discrepancy? Well, here's, here's, uh, here's uh, com uh, two common approaches. The first approach suggested by some scholars is that Luke sees Israel's story as a tragedy. They, Israel was offered redemption when Yeshua came, but they rejected it. Therefore, they forfeited their redemption. It's a sad story, right? The intended restoration failed. That's one, one view of, of Luke Acts. Another view of Luke Acts, another approach, is to say that Luke redefines Israel to mean only the followers of Yeshua, right? So the Jews who reject Yeshua are no longer part of true Israel and are therefore excluded from the restoration of Israel that takes place in the church. So this, this image of national restoration that we see in Luke chapter 1 and 2, well, that gets transferred to the church. Uh, Israel as a whole didn't experience it because they were uh, they didn't accept Yeshua, right? Only only the people who accept Yeshua get to experience that restoration. Okay, so that's that's a another approach. Uh, I want to say both of these approaches are wrong. Uh, both of them represent a form of supersessionism, replacement theology, right? In in different ways, right? But both of them essentially say that uh, literal physical Israel, the Jewish people, their, their time is up. Now it's a new people of God that God is dealing with, uh, the church, right? The Christians, that's the new people. Um, I want to suggest a third option. That is that Luke envisions a future restoration for Israel. In other words, this, this image of redemption and restoration and, and literal national physical restoration for the Jewish people that we see in Luke 1 to 2, this will still take place in the future. And that uh, Luke highly anticipates that to take place. Uh, it's important to note that even in these first two chapters of Luke, however, there is an ominous note that we encounter amid uh, this optimistic vision of the infancy narratives. Uh, I want to take a quick look at Luke 2, 34 and 35. So this is uh, Simeon, when, when Mary and Joseph bring the baby Yeshua to the temple, uh, Simeon comes up to them, and Simeon blessed them, and he has this, this message that he gives just to, to Mary. Mary, his mother, he says, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. So, so uh, even though the, the dominant tone throughout these chapters is like positive, unrelentingly positive, it's, uh, we, we get this ominous, uh, somber tone come out here in the middle of Luke chapter 2. 
with this with this oracle that Simon gives to Mary. Um, one scholar, David Tede, argues that this phrase, the fall and rising of many in Israel, that this this there's a temporal sequence being uh, presented here. First, many in Israel will fall, meaning there will be judgment. But eventually, many in Israel will rise, meaning redemption, restoration. So, so it happens in that order. First fall, then rise. And so Simeon, he, he predicts both the cross, a sword piercing through Mary's soul, that's Yeshua dying on the cross, as well as um, the fall of Jerusalem, the fall of many in Israel. But just as Yeshua had to fall in order to rise, so Israel had to fall in order to rise. In other words, uh, this is, this is uh, giving us a portent that, yes, there will be judgment, but there will also be restoration that will follow that judgment. I think this offers us a clue as to how it is that the Tanakh predicts the suffering and resurrection of Messiah. Messiah and Israel share the same story. They share the same history. Messiah is the quintessential Israelite. Let's take a look at that. Over and over again throughout scripture, we see the theme of exile and redemption, right? There's this pattern, uh, you know, think back to uh, Deuteronomy. Moses predicts that Israel will stray from following God and stray from following Torah and they will experience exile, right? I mean, there's this series of curses that we see at the end of Deuteronomy and they culminate in Israel being taken away from her land and being in a foreign place. But Moses says, even from there, God will turn you back to him and restore you and bring you back to the land. So there's this theme of, of uh, this pattern of exile and redemption. And uh, so this, and, and throughout the prophets, we see the same sort of thing, right? The prophets constantly predicting that Israel will experience untold suffering for rejecting God and his Torah. And the ultimate expression of this suffering is exile. Exile, we could say, is a form of national death. But there are also promises of redemption. And redemption is a form of national resurrection, right? So exile and redemption, these stand, uh, met, are metaphorically represented by death and resurrection. And, and we see this made clear in Ezekiel 37. I'm sure we're familiar with this passage. This is where Ezekiel has this vision of the dry, the valley of dry bones, right? There's uh, this valley full of bones. And then in this prophetic vision, these bones come to life. And there's this resurrection. I mean, he, he literally sees what it looks like for dry bones to be raised from the dead uh, and before his eyes, right? And... Um, in the explanation of this vision, God explains to Ezekiel, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel, right? Uh, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you up from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you back into the land of Israel. 
So this resurrection here is being used as a metaphor for the end of the exile, for the restoration, for redemption, right? That's what this is, a national resurrection. Um, no less miraculous than literal resurrection. And I think there is also a hint of literal resurrection in this passage as well. Uh, what I'm suggesting is that the apostles would have seen Ezekiel 37 as not just about the resurrection of Israel as a nation, but also about the resurrection of Israel's king, the Messiah. And I think that comes out if we go later in the chapter, down to verse 24, we see an explicit reference to David. My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules, be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob. Um, and David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. So there's a connection here in this passage between Israel, David, and the Messiah. At least the way the, the apostles are piecing this together, right? David represents the nation of Israel. David represents uh, Messiah as well, right? So that's why in the book of Psalms, we talked about this a while back in one of the sessions as well. You look at the, the sequencing of the Psalms in the book of Psalms, and there's a, there's a story being told. The Psalms of David are depicting the story of Israel. David lives out Israel's national experience. But of course, the Psalms also point forward to Yeshua, because Yeshua too lives out Israel's national experience. So we see this, this threefold, uh, you know, these three people coming together, Israel, David, and Messiah, uh, kind of coalescing in, in some of these themes. Let's look at another passage here. Uh, Hosea chapter 6. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. Here we have resurrection on the third day uh, being prophesied in the Tanakh, right? Now, keep in mind, Again, just like in Ezekiel 37, this is talking about Israel. This is a national resurrection being, being um, depicted for the nation of Israel, right? And, and, and resurrection is this imagery of restoration. But I want to suggest that the apostles saw this as talking about Yeshua. These prophecies about Israel are also about Yeshua. Okay, so um, if you recall from one of our earlier sessions, uh, back in, in Luke, in the first couple chapters of Luke, we see this, uh, well, specifically in Luke 2, verse 43, it refers to Yeshua as Jesus o pes. Uh, the word pes means child. Uh, and so most translations will say Yeshu the child Yeshua, uh, the child Jesus in that verse. But pes can also mean 
servant or slave. Uh, and in fact, this is the third occurrence of the word pes and the first in, in Luke, the first two occurrences of the word pes are very significant. So we have in Luke 154, Israel is called God's pes, God's servant. In Luke 169, David is called God's pes or God's servant. And then in Luke 2.43, Yeshua is the pes, the servant, right? So here we see, again, these three characters, Israel, David, and Messiah, um, kind of coming together in, in, in one sort of nexus, right? So in other words, Israel is God's servant, King David is God's servant, and Messiah sums up both of those into one. Right? He's the ultimate Davidic king, and he is the ultimate Israelite. He's the ultimate representation of Israel. And significantly, this term, pes, is the same Greek word that the Septuagint used to translate the servant of the Lord in Isaiah. So we have in Isaiah, in Hebrew, it's Evid Adonai, the, the servant of the Lord. In Greek, it's Opes Tukuriu, the, the pes of of the Lord, right? The, the servant of the Lord. It's the same word applied to Yeshua, to Israel, and to David. We talked about the servant songs. Uh, I forget what session that was, but a while back, uh, and how these, these passages in Isaiah, they depict this, this servant of the Lord character. And, and there's been some debate over the years as to, is this talking about Messiah or is it talking about Israel? And as we saw, a compelling case can be made for both. The answer is yes, it's talking about Messiah and it's talking about Israel. Um, this is especially significant for looking at Isaiah 53, Isaiah 52, 13 to 53, 12. Um, I want to just turn there for a second. There we go. <laughs> Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Uh, this is, by the way, a very significant phrase. Um, high and lifted up and exalted. Uh, this is, uh, in, in Hebrew, it's, it's quite emphatic. Yarum venisa v'gava ma'od. So this is it's using the metaphor of altitude, spatial height, right? Yarum, uh, so he shall be high. Nisa, he shall be lifted up. Vagava, and he shall be high. And then it, em it, it emphasizes it all with this word ma'od, very, right? So it's like, I, I don't know how you could get any more emphatic than that by depicting this servant at this exalted position. And what's significant is that these, this cluster of terms elsewhere in scripture are only used of God himself. This is no ordinary servant. This is no mere human, right? This is looking towards the divine Messiah himself. Um, but then it proceeds to describe a very lowly character, someone who's, who's marred beyond human semblance um, and who has who sprinkles many nations. And then it goes on to Isaiah 53, who's believed a report, 
or to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed, uh, talks about how he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Um, he, he bore our griefs, carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, like a lamb led to the slaughter. Um, and it goes on, right? So I mean, it's a great passage. We should uh, it'd be worth looking at more in your own time. The, the point I wanted to get across here is that, you know, if you ever talk to, uh, I, I don't recommend doing this, but uh, if you ever talk to Jewish anti-missionaries, so these are people who uh, don't believe Yeshua is the Messiah, and they are aggressively trying to dissuade Jews from believing that Yeshua is the Messiah. They will look at this passage and they'll say, this is talking about Israel. The Christians misinterpreted this and said it's talking about Messiah, but no, the whole passage is talking about Israel. And they'll say, all these, all these, everywhere you see the servant of the Lord in Isaiah is talking about Israel. It's not talking about Messiah. Um, in a sense, they are half right. I think these descriptions here, at least at least in part, I think is talking about the suffering, the national suffering that Israel experiences. But the point is that Messiah too participates in that suffering because Messiah is the quintessential representation of Israel. He experiences what Israel experiences. Right, so the the prophecies about Israel's suffering and res and resurrection in the Tanakh point to Yeshua. We saw when we looked at Yeshua's temptation how he relives the experience of Israel in the wilderness. Right, he's he's that Israelite only he passes the tests that Israel failed. Uh, also at Yeshua's immersion and. Uh, at the transfiguration, Yeshua is declared to be God's son, right? You see that in Luke 3.22 and in Luke 9.35. Well, Israel is also referred to as God's son, Exodus 4.22, Hosea 11.1. 1. And of course, the Davidic king was declared to be God's son, Psalm chapter 2, 2 Samuel 7.14 and other passages. So just like the servant of the Lord character in Isaiah, this title, Son of God, singles out Yeshua as the quintessential Israelite, the quintessential Davidic king who combines these two roles into one, as it were, right? Yeshua is the ultimate representation of Israel. So we have Israel, David, and Messiah uh, colliding in these passages. The point in all this is that I think Luke has already made it very clear uh, that there's this intrinsic connection between Israel and Messiah. Let's, uh, let's see how that pans out. Okay, let's look at Luke 22. <laughs> we'll dive into our, our passage here. Um, by the way, we're not going to have time to do justice by any means to these last chapters of Luke, but I want to just kind of pick out a couple highlights. Um, so Yeshua comes and enjoys a, a Passover Seder with his disciples, right? So he goes and he tells them to prepare the Passover. 
And then when the hour came, he reclined at table and he, he says, um, when he gets to uh, the bread, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Think here of Exodus 12, 14. This is talking about the Passover. God says, this day shall be for you a memorial. In Hebrew, it's the word zikaron, a, a remembrance. And you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord. So, so in, in Exodus, what are we supposed to remember? We're supposed to remember God's deliverance, God delivering the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt, right? In Luke, what does Yeshua say we're supposed to remember? We're supposed to remember him. So for us as believers, Passover is a memorial of two things, the, the exodus from Egypt and Yeshua's death and resurrection. And so once again, this is connecting Israel's history with Yeshua. Yeshua is connecting Israel's history with himself, right? Um, notice this comes up several times. We see the kingdom of God keeps coming up, right? Uh, he's talking about the Passover, topascha in Greek, uh, this can be understood as the Passover lamb. I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover lamb with you before I suffer. I will not eat it again. Some, some manuscripts add the word again. Uh, some don't have it. But the point is that he's eating it there with them now. He's not going to eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Right? Jump down to, that was verse 16. Uh, jump down to verse 18. I will, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Uh, jump down to verse 20. This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Jump down to uh, verse 28. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my father assigned to me, a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So, the focus is still on the kingdom. That, I mean, Yeshua has been preaching the kingdom all the way. Uh, well, since before Yeshua was born, the kingdom has been preached, even by Gabriel, the angel, right? Uh, John the Baptist was preaching the kingdom. Yeshua was preaching the kingdom. He sent out his disciples to preach the kingdom. He's still talking about the kingdom. That's still the focus here. Even though the judgment against Jerusalem has been sealed, that hasn't changed God's ultimate plan. The kingdom will still come to pass, right? Uh, the, Israel's failure to respond to Yeshua's message did not kibosh God's plan. This is still going to happen. And, and this, uh, this new covenant that Yeshua talks about, the new covenant in my blood, of course, Yeshua is referring back to Jeremiah 31, where God talks about making a new covenant. And this is, again, all about the kingdom, right? You read the description of the new covenant, it's talking about the kingdom, the messianic era. So, uh, this is all still very much on part of the messianic itinerary, right? To get to the kingdom. All right. I want to talk a little bit about the timing of the resurrection and a bit about the Luke's passion chronology. So if we go back to, let's jump up to verse 7. So Luke 22, verse 7, then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. In Greek, the word for Passover lamb is Pascha. 
It can mean Passover or it can mean Passover lamb, right? And just like in, in Hebrew, Pesach, it can mean the Passover celebration in general, or it can mean the Passover lamb in particular. And so Yeshua said to Peter and John, go and prepare the Pascha for us. I don't know why most translations don't add the word lamb here. Yeshua is telling them to go and prepare the Passover lamb for their Passover celebration. Uh, but a lot of, I, I don't know, maybe... Maybe some Christians are uncomfortable with the idea that Yeshua was telling his disciples to go and make a sacrifice in the temple. <laughs> that could be. Uh, but I think it's pretty clear in Greek that he's commanding them to go and do that and to prepare this Passover lamb. Right? And uh, where may, may I eat the Passover lamb, the Pascha, with my disciples? And they went and prepared the Pascha, the Passover lamb. Right? Just like Yeshua told them to. And then he says, I desire to eat this Pascha with you. So the point is in all this, that this, this uh, last supper, if we want to call it that, is a Passover meal. The way Luke depicts it, this is a Passover meal. This takes place on the 14th of Nisan. Um, and Yeshua ate a Passover lamb with his disciples. What that means is that Yeshua's crucifixion, according to Luke, takes place on the 15th of Nisan. And if we jump down to Luke 23, 54, it says it was the day of preparation. In Greek, that's the word paraskeves. That's the Greek word for Friday. Uh, we see it used that way in Josephus, in early Christian writings, but, and actually in modern Greek, it's still the word for Friday. It's kind of ironic. In modern Greek, you've got the word preparation means Friday. Uh, Savaton, Sabbath means Saturday. Uh, but uh, most Greeks don't feel obliged to prepare anything on Friday or keep s Sabbath on Saturday. <laughs> anyway, that's besides the point. The point is that the way Luke is presenting this is Yeshua's crucifixion takes place on the 15th of Nisan on a Friday. And then we have the Shabbat. The, the Sabbath was beginning and the women come and they prepare spices, but on the Sabbath, they rest according to the commandment. And then on the first day of the week, uh, we'll talk more about this phrase, miaton savaton, uh, when we get to the book of Acts. But for now, let's just say this means the first day of the week, right? This is Sunday. Uh, Yeshua rose early Sunday morning, or maybe in our reckoning, we could say he rose Saturday night. I don't know. It's uh, either way. It's, my opinion, not a big distinction. Uh, the point is that the way Luke presents it, uh, Yeshua died on a Friday on the 15th of Nisan, uh, and he rose on a Sunday, right after the Sabbath. Uh, some people might object and say that, well, Yeshua had to die on the 14th of Nisan, not the 15th, because the Passover lamb is sacrificed on the 14th and, and Yeshua is the Passover lamb. So he had to have been, he had to have died on the 14th. Well, according to the book of Hebrews, the Yom Kippur sacrifices also point to Yeshua, even though he didn't die on Yom Kippur. So if that explanation doesn't satisfy you, all I can say is when we get to the kingdom, you can hash that one out with Luke yourself. <laughs> I'm, I'm just telling you what Luke says. I'm not I don't have all the answers here. Uh, Luke makes it clear that they had their Passover on the day when the, the, the Passover lambs were sacrificed, and then he died the next day. 
Now, I'm not going to try and reconcile that with John's chronology. We might get a slightly different uh, take if we were reading just the Gospel of John. I'm also not going to try and reconcile that with Matthew 12, 40, where it talks about Yeshua being in the earth for three days and three nights, right? Uh, how do you get that? I know it's a beloved pet doctrine of some messianics to insist Yeshua was crucified on a Thursday or even on a Wednesday uh, and, and, and instead of Friday so that you can get a full three days and three nights in the grave in there. Um, I hope I'm not stepping on toes here. That theory just doesn't fit the gospel of Luke. Right. If we, if all we have is the Gospel of Luke, and we're we're reading this straight, um, that phrase three days and three nights does not show up anywhere else in in uh, the apostolic scriptures referring to the resurrection of Yeshua. Um, it doesn't appear anywhere in Luke. Luke is very clear that Yeshua rose on the third day. He repeats that many times on the third day. Right. So if Friday is the day he died. Shabbat would be the second day. Sunday is the third day. He rose on the third day. So again, we'll not get into some of the debates there. But, um, why is this significant? Why am I delving into this? Because there are passages in the Tanakh that I believe apply to Yeshua's resurrection that we would miss if we assume that he has to be dead for three full days. Right, So if we try and cram all these other references to the resurrection to fit with that one verse in Matthew, three days and three nights, I think we're going to miss some of these things. Uh, in my opinion, it's easier to make Matthew's reference fit into Luke's chronology than the other way around. Um, but anyway, we won't delve into that anymore at this point. Here's a couple verses I want to uh, take note of. In the Torah... The commandment for peace offerings. We won't go to these verse to these verses, but in Luke, Leviticus 7, 17 to 18, Leviticus 19, verses 6 to 7, we see this commandment that when you offer a peace offering, you can eat it on the day you offer it, and you can eat it on the next day. But any meat that is left over for the third day, on, on the third day, has to be burnt. It is, and it uses the Hebrew word pigul. It is uh, tainted meat by the third day. It cannot be eaten. And if, if someone eats meat from a peace offering that's left over till the third day, there are bad consequences uh, involved. And why is that? Because the sanctuary is supposed to be a place of life and holiness. And by the third day, you know, no refrigeration, decomposition is starting to take place. And that is antithetical to the holiness of the place, right? Um, the purity laws revolve around life versus death, right? And so you know, the sanctuary is supposed to represent life. That ties in with an interesting verse in the Psalms. Uh, if we go to Psalm 16, verse 10, and this is a verse that the apostles quote and, and apply to Yeshua. David says, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption, shachat. Um, in other words, the idea is that by the third day, decay starts to kick in, right? If Yeshua's body, uh, now this, uh, maybe this is a, a bit of a stretch, but what I'm suggesting is that we put these passages together. If Yeshua's body is left over dead until the third day, 
corruption starts to kick in. The natural forces of nature start to kick in and it becomes pigul, tainted, right? And so from the standpoint of the sacrificial system, Yeshua has to rise on the third day. He can't remain in the tomb longer than that. Um, and this verse from Psalms ties in with that. And then, of course, our verse in Hosea, uh, Hosea 6, verse 2, right? Let's take another quick look at that again. After two days, he will revise us. On the third day, he will raise us up. If we had our passion chronology askew, we might say, oh, that can't apply to Yeshua because he rose after three days, not on the third day. Well, no, Luke is very clear. He rose on the third day. Uh, he repeats that often in his gospels and that that happened according to the scriptures. Okay. A few other things uh, I want to look at here. We're going to go to Luke. 23 starting in verse 27 uh could i get a volunteer to read this we're going to read verses 27 to 31 sure i can read that sure that'd be great and there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him but turning to them yeshua said daughters of jerusalem do not weep for me but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Mm -hmm. Thank you. All right. So we have, last week, we were looking at these passages that present the, the passion of Yeshua and the destruction of Jerusalem in parallel. You know, uh, uh, I mentioned earlier that scholars like to describe the Gospel of Mark as a passion narrative with an extended introduction. Well, uh, N.T. Wright, who's a New Testament scholar, uh, he once made an astute observation about uh, Josephus's book, The Jewish War. Uh, so this book is, uh, Josephus is writing around the end of the first century. He's a Jew who was taken captive during the war and taken to Rome. And so he writes an account of that war, the, the final, uh, that war in which uh, Jerusalem was eventually destroyed in 70 CE. And N.T. Wright describes this book written by Josephus as a passion narrative, meaning the war itself, with an extended introduction. <laughs> so what, what N.T. Wright is doing there is he's making a connection between, a, a parallel between the passion of Yeshua and the passion of Jerusalem. These two are in parallel. And as N.T. Wright notes, Luke makes this parallel explicit. Luke intentionally places the fall of Jerusalem and the death of Yeshua side by side. So we see that in uh, Luke 13, what we looked at before, uh, Luke 19, Yeshua weeping over Jerusalem. We looked at Luke 21, the times of the Gentiles. And then now we have this 
passage, uh, talking to the daughters of Jerusalem, right? Yeshua says, don't weep for me, uh, but weep for yourselves and for your children, right? Yeshua was just weeping for Jerusalem because of the coming destruction. And so Yeshua is inviting the women to weep with him rather than for him, to grieve with him over the coming destruction of Jerusalem instead of grieving for him. Then we get to this enigmatic last verse. If they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Uh, you could also translate the word wood as tree, right? Uh, so green tree, dry tree. Uh, what's the point? The point is Yeshua is that green tree, right? Yeshua is the righteous one. If even he gets caught in the blaze of judgment at the hands of Rome, how much more so will the entire city in the not-too-distant future? Uh, N.T. Wright puts it this way. He says, Having announced the divine judgment upon temple and nation alike, a judgment which would take the form of awful devastation at the hands of pagan forces, Yeshua, or Jesus, he says, was now going ahead of the nation to undergo the punishment which, above all, symbolized the judgment of Rome on her rebel subjects. If they did this to the one revolutionary who was not advocating rebellion against Rome, what would they do to those who were and those who followed them? So as we saw last week, Yeshua's suffering and death is a participation in the suffering of the Jewish people and the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 CE. Uh, Mark Kinzer puts it this way. He says, Luke sees Jesus' death as a voluntary act in which Jerusalem's future king proleptically bears the judgment that will come upon his guilty but still beloved city. Why did Yeshua die on a cross? Right? I mean, why, why not die from any other myriad of possible means? Aside from crucifixion being one of the most excruciating ways to die, it is also a, a, a archetypically Roman way to die. This represents death at the hands of Rome. The gospel presented in Luke 1 and 2 is supposed to be about the downfall of Rome, Rome being defeated, right? And what happens instead? Yeshua is killed by Rome, right? And so this, this death at the hands of Rome foreshadows what Israel will experience in the very new, near future. But here's the thing. If Yeshua's death foreshadows Jerusalem's judgment, what does Yeshua's res resurrection foreshadow? It must foreshadow Jerusalem's restoration. I believe that just as Yeshua's crucifixion was a participation in the suffering of Israel, so his resurrection is a portent for Israel's ultimate restoration. All right, let's try and wrap this up here. I'm going to kind of recap some of what we've gone through. Um, so, where in the prophets does it say that Messiah will die and rise again on the third day? It doesn't. It says that about Israel. Paul's explanation of the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15 draws on prophecies about Israel. So I'm suggesting a, a, a new way of looking at prophecy, right? 
Why are the prophecies of Israel's desolation and restoration about Messiah? Because Messiah represents Israel. As Israel's representative, he must experience Israel's sufferings as well as her restoration. This is not about replacing Israel with Messiah. This is where I think N.T. Wright gets it wrong. <laughs> um, pardon the pun. Uh, this is not about replacing Israel with Messiah. Instead, what happens to Messiah guarantees Israel's future. So this, it doesn't mean, it doesn't just mean that the prophecies about Israel apply to Messiah. It also means that what happened to Messiah will happen to Israel. Yeshua's suffering, death, and resurrection are all foreshadows of what will befall Israel. We see in what Yeshua experienced a replaying of Israel's history. So in addition to all the things that we usually think of when we talk about why Yeshua had to suffer, right? He had to suffer for our sins. He had to suffer as our atonement, as the sacrificial lamb. Yes, all these things. But more than that, in addition to that, Messiah's suffering represents a participation in the last two millennia of suffering of the Jewish people. He embodied all the suffering of countless Jews throughout history in his own suffering on the cross. He bled and died in solidarity with his own people. As the quintessential Israelite, he experienced the bitterness of exile and death. Yeshua suffered not only for his people, but he also suffered with his people. Yeshua was by no means the only Jew to be put to death on a Roman cross. Josephus tells us that during the siege leading up to the final destruction of Jerusalem in 70 CE, the Romans literally ran out of wood to make crosses for all the thousands of Jewish victims that they crucified. As Israel's God and Israel's king, he feels Israel's pain and participates in Israel's suffering. But of course, all this implies a very profound truth. And that is that Yeshua's resurrection is a guarantee of Israel's restoration. His victory over death and the grave is a foreshadowing of the redemption and restoration of the Jewish people. All this to say, you can't take Israel out of the gospel message. And by Israel here, I mean the Jewish people, right? You can't take Israel out of the gospel message. This, this brings us back to our definition of the gospel from that we looked at back in session one, going back to the very beginning of Luke. What is the gospel? What, what does this even mean, right? As uh, N.T. Wright suggests, and I think he's right about this, <laughs> Luke and the other gospel writers drew from Isaiah 52 in their definition of the gospel. Let's jump there for a second here, and uh, we'll close with... Uh, as we ponder this verse, or these verses here. Isaiah 52. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who bring good news, the gospel, right? In Hebrew, ragleim vaser, the, the feet of the evangelist, the feet of the bringer of good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy, for eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Remember that theme? 
You will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is what Israel's been looking for and waiting for, the return of the Lord to Zion. This signifies the end of the exile. Break forth into singing. You waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He's redeemed Jerusalem. Why are there waste places of Jerusalem? Because Israel experienced God's judgment and was sent into exile, but God has comforted his people, meaning those waste places are going to be rebuilt and re-inhabited. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. This is talking about the end of the exile, the restoration of Israel, the final restoration of Israel. This is the good news. This is the gospel that is being presented here. And of course, here we are in Isaiah 52. It's just a few verses later that we get to the song of the suffering servant. And as N.T. Wright suggests, I think the apostles put these two together. This presentation of the gospel, this end of the exile, the final restoration of Israel, it will take place through the work of the suffering servant. It is the work of the servant that brings about the end of Israel's, Israel's exile. But more than that, I think this, what we see here is the servant himself participates in that exile and guarantees Israel's restoration by conquering the grave. Thanks for listening to this audio teaching. The goal of Segula is to cast a vision for a healthy and mature Messianic Torah movement. This series of teachings on Luke Acts is made possible through the help of our ministry partners and supporters. For more information about this ministry, please visit www.segula.net. May the Father richly bless you as you seek Him, and together may we all become a glorious people in Messiah.